Welcome to Adaptation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Kazazi, and today we have the brilliant, brave, and incredibly smart Dr. Kate Shanahan joining us to give you the inside scoop on poofers, connective tissue, and nutritional beauty. I've been a huge fan of Dr. Kate for some time, and all because of her incredible book, Deep Nutrition. For me, it is a must read, as it reconnects us back to the nutritional principles that helped us as a species thrive and become who we are today. It's loaded with accessible science, revelationary insights into the effects foods have on our internal chemistry, whilst also deeply respecting and embracing our relationship with traditional cooking. It's that good that I was itching to get Kate on the show so we can dig into the big topics within this book and help connect some dots up in a way that you may have never considered before. And boy, did Kate deliver. After having the obligatory COVID-related sync-up, we dove into why Dr. Kate has waged an all-out war on commercial poofers, which are polyunsaturated fats, i.e. vegetable and seed oils. If you're not familiar with the reasons why there's a strong push away from seed oils in the health and wellness space, you'll be brought nicely up to speed in this deep dive. Then we get into another big topic of Kate's, the need to nourish your body with saturated fats and collagen. In particular, we dive into the role of connective tissue in our bodies and why it's important to nourish these tissues in particular. We then segue into the controversial but fascinating subject of how nutrition can have an effect on beauty, especially in the mother's womb. That lastly teases up for a really interesting and important discussion regarding maternal and baby nutrition and how a malnourished mother can have a number of undesirable effects on a child's development. All in an awesome and highly practical discussion with a brilliant woman. And as always, you can check out the full show notes of this episode by clicking the link within the description of this episode. And if this discussion resonates with you, please help others find our show by leaving a five-star rating or review in your podcast app and tagging us in a screenshot, whether it be on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Lastly, if you want to take your personal growth to the next level, check out our Be Your Best Self-Optimization journey an online self-improvement program like no other, letting you into the human code and helping realize your full potential and be your best. You can find more details and podcast listener discounts in the episode notes. Enough already, let's go with this one. We have the brilliant Dr. Kate Shanahan talking about why you should quit vegetable oils and the nutrition beauty connection. Alrighty, today I am super excited and psyched to have this conversation. I am a true fanboy of this guest today who knocked me sideways with her seminal book, Deep Nutrition. Now, this book introduced me to ideas in nature and physiology that makes just so much sense, but I had never heard them before and definitely not in such a convincing and accessible way. So a little bit about our guest before I'll give you the name. She is a board-certified U.S. family physician who has specialized in deeply understanding the effects of nutrition on our metabolic health and physicality. 
she comes to life when given the chance to educate a skill. So whether it be in organizations, to the public, or even elite sports teams. And to that effect, she's built nutritional programs for the likes of the LA Lakers and other NBA teams, which is super interesting, all with the focus on optimal performance. She has helped countless people directly or indirectly reverse diet-driven conditions such as obesity, diabetes, chronic fatigue, autoimmune conditions, and many more conditions. And she's waged a war against polyunsaturated fats and the processed food industry, leading the way for industry reform. And of course, an internationally recognized nutritional author with some incredible books to her name. Who do we have on the show? Well, you have heard me bang on about this lady enough already in prior shows. It's the amazing force for good, the courageous and insanely bright Dr. Kate Shanahan. Welcome, Kate. Wow, Steve, that was like the kindest introduction I've ever heard. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's a true pleasure to have you on. And yeah, it was all one, it's true, and two, it's absolutely from my heart. So I want to know, like, how, how are you getting on these days? It's been um it's been a crazy couple of months. How are you settling into this uh, lockdown situation we find ourselves in? Well, I've had it pretty lucky because the company that I work for right now, I'm working for a wine company and they've been considered an essential business. And because the restaurants um, have not and the bars have not, they sell wine and liquors and spirits. My, you know, my employer does. And so their business has been going through the roof and they're just rolling in it. So um, I, uh, I've been though kept pretty busy with all the, is this COVID, coronavirus? Is that coronavirus? What do we do? And, um, you know, helping them navigate all these, uh, twists and turns of this whole thing. Um, uh, you know, just in a small way that I'm helping them, um, w- as far as like creating policy to help people keep safe and help people understand everything. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but, um, you know, uh, it's, it's, it was very kind of at the beginning, kind of almost, I have to say like, disappointing to hear that the government was so willing in this country to just like sacrifice business for the the sake of theoretically um, helping a few intensive care units not become overcrowded. Mm. Um, I mean, that's kind of the way I look at it. And, um, and, 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 the reason I say that it's disappointing that um, they're so willing to sacrifice business, um, it's not because I don't think lives are you know important and you know we should be able to save as many lives as we possibly could. But if we really were interested in saving lives, we would have had a completely different nutritional approach for the past seventy years. And, and this, um, you know, leaks over into my, uh, the bane of my existence, which is the seed oils and how they are actually making this coronavirus pandemic much more terrifying and much more frightening. And had we the courage to make the business decisions to do something other than force feed these to the world, uh, we wouldn't be here and we wouldn't have had to flatten a curve. It wouldn't have been such a big peak. We we could have handled it at all. Mm. I, I think yeah, what well, you're, you're preaching to the converted. Um, I, I try not to make COVID-19 the center of my business, but it's hard not to, right? Quite frankly, when that's all that people want to hear, consume and think about. So 
yes, I have been speaking about this. And yes, we've got people that have been on and are coming on to talk exclusively around the political response, the social response, the the lack of nutritional response, uh, and of course, the you know the significant lockdown measures across various countries, including the one I'm in, the UK. Um, I think it's complicated, right? It's clearly political. Uh, it's the safest political decision to make, uh, which is, if in doubt, lockdown, right? I mean, because at least you won't be considered callous and barbarian. But I totally agree. The cost to lives as a result of the decisions we are making now, I think is significant and profound in livelihood, mental health, general physical health, and the fact that we have ignored, we've absolutely ignored the significance of nutrition. If we only had the courage to you know, call out that we've been guiding our people wrongly, nutritionally over the last 60 years, and over the next or last eight weeks, direct them in a more healthy way, this lockdown could have been a profound, uh, can have ha- have had a profound effect on people's robustness and immune health. But we haven't done that. In actual fact, I think we've gone backwards in terms of immune health with all the fear and scaremongering. So I- I'm completely on the same page. I mean, did you want to key off anything else I've just said there before we kind of maybe get into your intro? Yes, because the the thing. Uh, thank you for uh, asking. The uh, the thing that makes so many doubt that there really is a metabolic uh, contribution here, Um, you know, without getting into the science of how inflammation is actually what's killing people, it's the body's, it's not the virus itself, it's the body's um, overwhelmingly uncoordinated inflammatory response that goes out of control and makes people very, very ill and uh, kills them ultimately with the, um, the ARDS and the other things that are happening like cytokine storm. But so what happens is that confuses folks and makes them turn away from the idea that there really is a, a serious metabolic issue is these pictures of people who are normal weight and look pretty, looking pretty fit, who've been very seriously ill. And the so they're saying, well, how can there be a metabolic problem? This person is obviously healthy. And that's where vegetable oils come in because the underlying condition that obesity, diabetes, hypertension, and all these other problems that we're saying are underlying conditions, the one thing they all have in common is that people have bodies full of vegetable oils. And you don't have to be overweight to have an overly uh, – uh, inflammatory body burden of vegetable oils in your body fat. And that's, that's the subject of, um, I talk about that a lot on my website and you know, what the vegetable oils are. And, uh, it's the subject of my latest book, actually the fat burn fix. And so I, I go into a lot of detail there about how these seed oils build up in your body fat over time. And even if you don't gain weight, they obliterate your, your metabolism in terms of uh, your ability to control inflammation. So we see a lot of normal weight people with all kinds of inflammatory diseases. Mm-hmm. And and in deep nutrition, my husband and I, when we wrote this, we actually originally started writing it back in 2004. We, you know, we we said we tried to warn people that if we don't change. Um, and stop eating these high poofa seed oils and all this junk food that we're going to see all kinds of bizarre um, health problems affecting young people, apparently 
uh, you know, people we expect to be able to be healthy, you know, but, but, uh, but suddenly unable. And we are seeing that not just in the epidemics of autism and, um, food allergies, but we're seeing that right now because kids are getting this Kawasaki like, um, vasculitis, which can be deadly, can cause heart attacks, it cause strokes in children, babies. And that is a direct result of the vegetable oil and their baby fat and their, you know, their body fat, even though they are babies and they don't have obvious like diabetes or any obvious underlying condition. Um, it's just our failure to recognize the, the, re- the real underlying condition being body fat full of vegetable oil. I think you make such a great point. We have a doctor over here called Dr. Asim Mahotra. I don't know if you're familiar with him. He's a cardiologist in the UK. Big uh, fan. You're, you're aware? Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Cool. So, um, yeah, uh, for the audience, he's he's kind of a, his claim to notoriety over the last 15 years has been lobbying this um, intergovernment policy and, you know, speaking with the likes of Jamie Oliver and really just having, having been a voice for reason that obesity and more... In, in particular, metabolic syndrome is at the root cause of much of our issues here in the UK. And we need to address that through nutrition. So I, I love his work. I love what he stands for. But only today, actually, Kate, he, um, he's got recognized by a couple of the big newspapers for um, being invited by our um, chief medical officer, who, who is within government, uh, within our current government, to go and speak to him about helping understand the links between obesity and COVID-19 and understanding Great. the the way in which policy could be con- um, reformatted to support the right dietary choices to get a hold of this obesity epidemic because he actually called out Boris Johnson, who's our prime minister, a couple of weeks ago and said, you got COVID-19 because you're over fat, <laughs> which was quite a bold move, but has got some attention. So yeah, I think, yeah, I think you're completely on the, the right page. And you, you have teed us up to talk about vegetable oils, which I think, other than the people that listen to this show and a few other kind of uh, nutritional geeky shows, probably don't understand what you're talking about. So let's get into that. But before we do, um, I have not given you an opportunity to kind of um, give us a bit of background as to who you are and how you found yourself at this place in your life, uh, specializing in um, diet-driven disease. So maybe you can give us a bit of a backdrop before we then kind of plunge deep into the poofers. Sure. I had my own health challenges, which didn't have anything to do with weight loss. It actually had to do with immune system health. So this topic is very near and dear to my heart. And um, I actually had a serious viral infection in my knee uh, that was making it impossible for me to walk and exercise for several years and nothing helped. I had surgery and all kinds of uh, consultations with different specialties and nothing helps. And it wasn't until I got my diet right uh, by dumping out every single idea I had learned about diet in medical school and and going back to traditional foods um, that I regained my health and my ability to walk. And so that was kind of the topic of my first book, Deep Nutrition, that my husband and I wrote together, which uh, when it was re-released, thanks to a a nice book deal we got because I had been working with the Lakers, it got re-released in 2017. And my man who is my current boss read it and changed his family's diet and it changed their lives because their lives were being disrupted by 
asthma. His uh, two-year-old daughter had such serious asthma that they actually had to sell their house and build one closer to the hospital because they were spending so much time uh, sitting in Orlando traffic freaking out with their daughter not being able to, you know, struggling to breathe basically in the, in the back seat. So, um, but when, uh, my boss, uh, Charlie Bales, he, uh, got the vegetable oils out of their diet. They've made a bunch of changes already and had some improvements, but, uh, getting the vegetable oils out of their family's diet was kind of like the magic, uh, last straw that really made a huge difference. And so he, he actually brought me down here to, to, uh, to somehow evoke change in his whole company. So we're working on that. Like that's my job here is to get people basically off of vegetable oils. And that's quite a Herculean effort because there's not a lot else in the grocery store at this point in time. And so it's very uh, tough to navigate, um, especially when you're talking about people who don't have a lot of time uh, to cook from scratch. And most of the restaurants are trying to force feed us these high PUFA seed oils like soy and canola and corn oil. So, right. So vegetable oils, I, I think... You're, you're up against this uh, constant uh, narrative or at least understanding the status quo that vegetable oils, it's in the name, it's got vegetables, it, vegetables it is good for you. Um, and margarine and stuff like that, that replaced butter, that's good for you. Help, help us rewind the tape a little bit and understand one, how we got to the point that vegetable oils are better for you than having saturated fat and then maybe explain why we've got it wrong. So uh, as I, I go through the story a little bit in deep nutrition, but there's there's even more to the story. It starts with a man named Ansel Keys, and he uh, was actually a physiologist, an oceanographer specializing in eels who worked in the 30s and 40s with the U.S. government. So he kind of made a name for himself. Um, he actually created uh, the K ration, which was the military's solution to feeding our military overseas during World War II, uh, you know, in Europe. So we had to send ready-to-eat meals over the ocean and feed our army that way. And so he basically um, went to a grocery store and just picked a, a bunch of things off the shelves that he thought would last, you know, a couple months without refrigeration. So it was like tinned meat and a candy bar and cigarettes um, and chewing gum and, you know, a couple cookies. And so... Um, fast forward, he became, he was an ego, egomaniac. I mean, any, his friends describe him that way as a, as a bully. Um, and he insinuated himself into the American Heart Association and influenced the American Heart Association's way of thinking about, um, about a diet, but also about financing themselves. And, um, he uh, had a huge relationship, obviously, from his massive uh, work in, in f- using processed food, basically, to feed an army. So he had a huge relationship with processed food and huge conflict of interest in terms of um, what he wanted to promote. And um, he actually was uh, doing the research to f- try and understand 
what was the cause of heart attacks? And and really, I should put air quotes around research because he was really looking for ways to spin what the data that he was collecting um, into a mechanism by which the American Heart Association could have an income stream from uh, industries like Procter and Gamble, who were selling vegetable oils, um, hydrogenated and unhydrogenated. And so, the American Heart Association, at its roots, is a conflicted organization that is a is basically in the fake news business and has been since the around World War II. So they you know, fund research like that of Ansel Keys, which um, is totally biased by folks like Ansel Keys wanting to continue to be able to get industry funding from places like Procter and Gamble and, you know, big ag. And I think the biggest smoking gun showing that Ansel Keys was, uh, you know, not just a ignorant person who didn't realize that what he was doing was going to kill people uh, by telling them not to eat saturated fat and moving them over towards the polyunsaturated seed oils and claiming that saturated fat uh, was what clogged our arteries is the fact that he was running this uh, huge study called the seven country study, which was collecting data on correlations between diet and smoking and heart attacks. And his data that was published in the late 1950s was clear. He, uh, he actually had the data in the late 1950s, but I'm sorry, it wasn't published at that time. But it was clear that cigarette smoking was what correlated with heart attacks. It was, you know, at that point in time, most people were eating a fairly traditional high saturated fat, low polyunsaturated fat diet. So what correlated the most wasn't the amount of fat, like he was trying to say, or the saturated fat, like he was trying to say. It was cigarette smoking, hands down. I mean, it makes sense, right? We know cigarette smoking causes heart attack deaths. Um, and there were tons of people who got hooked on cigarettes after World War II because um, they came for free in their K-rations. Um, so meanwhile, um, he has this data showing a clear correlation. And in 1961, he goes um, in, uh, to Time Magazine and does a massive interview and he was put on the cover and made Time Magazine Man of the War about Man of the Year about this interview. And he says, he puts it on the record that he doesn't think cigarette smoking is as important as, um, as saturated fat in causing heart attacks, which was a lie because he is the one who was collecting and in charge of the data showing it was sat it was not saturated fat it was cigarette smoking so he was going against the data that he was being paid to collect it was really a brilliant scheme i mean he was making money out of a, a hand and foot out of every direction he was being paid to do this research that he was uh, basically covering up that the cause of cigarettes were i'm sorry the cause of heart attacks was cigarettes and falsely blaming it unsaturated fat. So he framed saturated fat and, you know, as a byproduct, cholesterol later became more focused on cholesterol. Um, he framed those naturally occurring molecules, uh, for the sins committed by, uh, cigarettes at that time. And then basically slid vegetable oils in under the radar because of all that, uh, fear mongering around saturated fat and cholesterol. And since that point in time, our consumption of vegetable oils 
has skyrocketed. I mean, it's like 10 times what it was at that point in time, which uh, our consumption of polyunsaturated fatty acids is about 10 times what it was at that point in time, which is again, another, you know, fivefold over what it was at the beginning of the 1900s before the industry manufacturing, before Procter and Gamble had figured out how to make money off of cotton seeds, cotton seed oil. And I, I hear often, Kate, that um, as we replace or demonize animal-based products, we're forced to replace them with junk food. And that really has been the trend that we've seen over the last 60 to 70 years. If you take butter off the table, we put margarine on the table. Now, if we take meat off the table, we give you fake meat, we give you tofu, we give you soy-based products with many, many ingredients. Um, I'm guessing this was the start then, right? This kind of um, demonization of saturated fat really demonized in one fell swoop animal-based products. And in its replacement, we had to lean in on vegetable-based alternatives. And vegetable oils are those alternatives, but they're not vegetables in the truest sense. Do you want to help us understand what vegetable oils are? You've mentioned a couple of them, but you know, what, what's their origin? I mean, it's not just squeezed out of broccoli, right? There's, there's, there's a process which is pretty sinister in its own right. Yeah, they actually come from seed. So, um, a more accurate term is seed oils. Um, but the ingredients often list vegetable oil. So they don't specify which seed it came from. So the, the seeds that they come from, I call them the hateful eight. So there's, um, soy, sunflower, safflower, Corn, canola, cottonseed, that's six of them. So there's three C's, three S's there. And then there's two more, grapeseed and rice bran. Those last two are mostly in restaurants, at least in America. But um, those, so those hateful eight, and I have, um, I have a, uh, several pages on my website uh, that should catch your attention when you go there uh, to to have this list because it's a, it's a lot to ask anybody to, to memorize these, Mm. these eight things. But if you, um, once you start looking for them on labels, you're going to find them. I mean, if you, you know, if you're not a long time already listener to your show, I'm sure, um, you're going to be surprised by how many things that you find them in. And if you are a long time listener, I'm sure you're frustrated by friends and relatives who continue to consume them just because they're in so many things. And here's, here's the thing. If, if people listen to this now to think, okay, how often do I cook with vegetable oil or seed oils like sunflower oil, what have you? And I think, okay, well, if I'm going to make some roast potatoes, maybe if I'm going to make some chips, maybe if I'm going to put something in the oven, I just put a little bit of splash of oil there. Maybe if I kind of fry some stuff, I might use a bit, but Hey, you know what? I've got this bottle with it lasts forever. I don't use a lot. So this can't be a big problem. I'm not eating a lot of vegetable oils. What do you say to that? Because I, I know that they kind of sneak in, don't they, through the back door, through many of the foods that we eat. Oh, yes, they do. Yes. So the average person, according to the statistics on consumption, who's eating what in America, the average person gets 80% of all their fat calories from one of these eight seed oils or vegetable oils. Um, that's 80% of all their fat calories and only 20% come from any kind of animal fat, whether it's dairy fat or, you know, bacon and pig fat sausage, that kind of stuff, animal products. Um, 
or whole food based fats like avocado and coconut. So 80% is coming from these seed oils if you're not purposefully going out of your way to avoid them. So yes, indeed, they do sneak in and they're in foods that people consider healthy, like, you know, the energy bars and salad dressing, and they certainly sneak their way into restaurant foods. So not just the fast foods. A lot of people are surprised uh, when they start asking that some of their favorite restaurants uh, are using, not using olive oil, but are using one of these seed oils and if you're a fan of pizza or Italian and you've been struggling with heartburn after frequenting your favorite joints, um, you uh, probably are not so much having the problem because of the tomato sauce, but because of the combination actually when the acid and the polyunsaturated fats in the seed oils combine, it kind of activates the 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 damaging the the ability of them to damage your stomach lining basically so you get uh you get the uh damaging polyunsaturated fatty acids warming their way deeper into your stomach lining thanks to this kind of carrier wave of the acid in the tomato sauce and they actually can start damaging your stomach lining and causing inflammation in your stomach and causing heartburn that doctors, because they don't know about how seed oils actually promote inflammation, uh, will say, okay, well, you just have to stay away from tomatoes, but that's not what you have to stay away from. If you, you could probably have uh, go to a better restaurant or make your own pizza with olive oil. And I would bet money that at least 80% of the people who think they have, uh, have to avoid tomatoes and pasta sauce and all that don't, they just have to avoid the seed oils. Wow. Okay. And when it comes to seed oils, are they are they pervasive in industrial food manufacture? So if we think about anything that's in a packet, not not your vegetables in a packet, but generally everything that's processed, multiple ingredients uh, that we know is made in factory, um, why are they not using butter or beef dripping or olive oil? Um, is it because of our fear of fats and saturated fat in particular, or is it something else? It's because those products are more expensive, mm-hmm. and uh, at least in this country, there's rules that you you can't have butter uh, necessarily if you have if you want to have like a shelf stable product. Like if if you put butter as an ingredient or any kind of animal fat as an ingredient, it has to be refrigerated um, unless you go through a whole bunch of hoops. So um, that limits. The, the, you know, the, that right there is like manufacturers would be, you know, idiotic to use anything where they now suddenly you have to use an animal fat. Uh, I'm sorry, you have to refrigerate your, your mm-hmm. product. No, that's going to really limit how it's, how, you know, how it can be sold. It's going to increase the cost it's because refrigeration. Business. Yeah. It's just a ridiculous business decision. So, right. so because we want to have so many like ready to eat, open a sack kind of foods, then they're going to use these seed oils. And now you you could still say, well, why not use olive oil or avocado oil or coconut oil? Well, because in this country and probably also true in the UK, our climate is such that we don't grow very much of that stuff. Mm. What we do grow is plenty of soy, corn, um, and canola, and then the other rest of the the hateful eight um, because they are kind of colder climate 
plants, right? Mm. Coconut is a tropical plant. Avocados, you also tropical plant. And for olive oil, you have to be in a Mediterranean climate. So there's only a tiny portion of the United States where we can grow any olive oil. So we're force feeding people these things because it's what we produce. It's what we grow. It's what, um, what there is to eat basically. You, it sounds like you really can't, you can't do processed food without seed oils, not in a commercially viable way. Right. And they also have the added benefit um, to the manufacturer of having antifungal properties because they're basically anti-life, right? They're, they're, they act as a preservative. They polymerize um, when you use them, for example, to um, keep your dried blueberries uh, a little bit you know, from molding a little bit longer on the shelf, you just coat them in, um, soy oil or some kind of vegetable oil. And, um, it retards the growth of fungus because it's not, you know, useful for a lot of life forms. These, these polyunsaturated fatty acids are unstable and they do polymerize or break down. So they form like a nice, almost shellac on the dehydrated fruits that you buy them on. And, um, you know, they don't, but they don't like get in the way of the flavor that much. So it still tastes like blueberry, even though it's blueberry coated in a very thin layer of shellac, which is not, shouldn't be something that we eat. Yeah. You talk about flavor there. Okay. I mean, you know, we have loads of butter in this house and we have, we cook all our, you know, roast potatoes in beef dripping and, you know, the flavor is just like immense, incredible. Like whenever you use one of those two products, I know if you used any seed oil, I mean, it's bland. There's nothing to it, right? There's nothing to it. So really what you're tasting is the, is, uh, is, is the cooking and the, the, the product itself, but not necessarily the seed oil coating. Whereas you do taste that if you use beef dripping as a means of um, heating and cooking your potatoes. But so that's the thing on, 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 on the taste. I mean, there is no comparison. But talk to me a little bit about the um, the process of manufacturing these poofers, because my understanding is, you know, getting getting oil out of seeds ain't straightforward. <laughs> I definitely couldn't do that myself without any some industrial process. What what's going on there? How how do we make that happen? So it does involve massive industrial processes. There's like 40 production steps to make corn oil, for example. Um, and the reason for that is simple. Like if you t have a kernel of corn, there's it's about 1% fat. Um, and if you want to uh, make oil out of that, it's a very inefficient process. So you can make it more efficient with heat, pressure, and solvents. So uh, you have to add uh, all three of those above. And when you do that, so solvents like hexane, these aren't, these aren't healthy foods. So the solvents then later have to be refined out, right? So you've extracted some of this oil. Um, and because though, unfortunately of the heat and the pressure, um, you've distorted some of the molecules of these fatty acids and you've turned them from being you know, natural, um, natural shapes that exist in nature to completely unnatural shapes. And so every bottle of corn oil and canola oil is contaminated. They do their best to kind of refine that away. Um, but every bottle of corn oil and canola oil is still contaminated with small amounts of highly toxic fatty acids. And also the refining strips away the minerals and the antioxidants, right? So corn isn't toxic. 
But um, and the oil, the corn oil, when it's in the corn, isn't toxic either because it's stabilized. Even though it's un, an unstable fatty acid, the PUFAs are still PUFAs. It's stabilized by all the antioxidants and you know the corn intact food. Uh, that the seed is. And when you take all that away, you strip it out during the processing. Now, when you cook with it again, so now it's already been slightly damaged to get into the bottle. And now when you cook with it again, uh, you get even more of these polymerization and oxidation reactions that create toxic compounds. And so when you go to a restaurant that's been frying in these things, uh, frying, you know, deep frying for hours and hours at high temperatures, and you measure what's in there, you get all kinds of weird toxic breakdown products. So the worst of the worst is the deep fried stuff in the restaurants. Yeah, but, I, I can imagine. <laughs> and when when we hear of the words antioxidants or oxidative stress or oxidized, I think people realize this idea of like rusting or burning or inflammation. I mean, that the average Joe may not go that far, but they definitely hear the word antioxidant and go, okay, it's a good thing to have an antioxidant in my life. Therefore, if anything is pro-oxidant to excessive amounts in our body, that's probably not a good thing. Now, you talk about poofers going poof, which I quite like. Um, talk to me about how poofers are pro-oxidant in nature, at least when they get into our bodies. So it has to do with their chemistry. So we call them PUFAs, stands for polyunsaturated fatty acid. And it's just the chemistry of it, which um, refers to the shape of the molecule. So if it's a fully saturated molecule, fully saturated fat, it's stick straight. It looks like a stick um, when you draw it out. And it, that's because it's... Uh, Got it's got hydrogens bonding every possible place a hydrogen can bond. When we have an unsaturated fatty acid, there's been a hydrogen removed, at least one hydrogen removed from somewhere, and that does something very important to the molecule. It causes it to bend, and when you have one bend, then you have uh, an oil that's a little bit more liquid. So, like when we go from butter, which is solid and very high in saturated fat, to olive oil, which is very high in monounsaturated fat, we have a liquid, but that liquid will still coagulate if you put it in the fridge. So if you've got a good quality olive oil, you put it in the fridge, you start to see solid things forming yeah. in there, little chunks. Um, so, but when you have polyunsaturated fatty acids, which is two or more spaces where the hydrogen has been removed, it's kind of like now you have um, these, these hydrogens keep it stiff and keep the, um, it's kind of like having seats at a long table, right? And if you have an empty seat at the table, you've got a space for something to come in. And in the, uh, what comes in, in the case of oxidation is oxygen. You have oxygen reacting with the molecule. And when it turns out that when there are two empty spaces on the same fatty acid, that just is such a it's like a, a magnet for oxygen to come in and start reacting with the molecule. And it actually breaks it up. It breaks it apart. And you get these things called free radicals. And free radicals are very dangerous. They're dangerous like the same way that radiation is dangerous because they're high energy particles that damage other molecules. Mm. So what all that chemistry is, is to kind of describing very much like a polymerization reaction. Like if you've ever coated a uh, wood with a protective polyurethane and you've seen how it goes from sticky to hard, that's actually what's happening 
in your body when vegetable oils are damaging your tissues. There's little segments of your cells that are actually hardening and now are non-functional. So all of that, as you might imagine, is disruptive to the cell's ability to do its job. And it it's very inflammation promoting. And so that's why these vegetable oils cause inflammatory diseases in every tissue in our body, from our head to our toes, literally, from our brain to getting, you know, COVID toes. And I've I've heard you speaking about how um I'm going to get it slightly wrong, okay? Um, but you can correct me. <laughs> um, I've heard you speaking on on other shows and in in your book that if you were to look at the distribution or the percentage of of the makeup of our cells and have a look at how much you know the fat content is, say within our brain or within various fat cells, you can actually measure how much of that is you know the human appropriate um, proportions of saturated fat, etc. And in modern um, standard diet individuals, uh, that kind of dissection or, or um, enumeration of the kind of fat distribution is way skewed in the favor of polyunsaturated fat, which for me, if I've understood that right, is suggesting that you literally can change what you're made of by having this stuff. Have I got that right? Please, That's absolutely please make right. it make more sense than I did. There's, that's absolutely right. Now, now it gets a little complicated because your body really is a tries to regulate. It's very important that your cells are constructed of the right kinds of fats and the right proportions, and your your cells do their absolute best to regulate that and to make it be where it's just somewhere like between 2% and maybe 5% in your average cell membrane that is made out of these polyunsaturated fatty acids that we do need in our diet. We do need some in our diet, but when we get too much, that's when we run into trouble. So many, many cells in our body are able to maintain that proper balance, but where the, the cells that get in the most trouble are our fat cells because when we eat all these seed oils, we eat them, you know, in quantities beyond where other cells in our body want these polyunsaturated fatty acids. So where they end up is in our body fat. They have to end up so we can't just get rid of them. We can't just flush them out of our system. So our body fat becomes built out of them. And in the fat burn fix, I talk about how having over the years, an increasing concentration of these seed oil-derived polyunsaturated fatty acids, PUFAs, causes dysfunction in your body fat and actually leads to insulin resistance and leads to uh, hunger and ultimately you know, leads to obesity in a lot of people, but certainly leads to uh, all the complications of insulin resistance, which includes diabetes and, and everything related to diabetes. But it all starts with the seed oils. And so we talk, we, you know, and that's an important point. I want to understand that even diabetes begins with the seed oils because we talk a lot about sugar mm-hmm. and carbohydrates as being a cause of diabetes, but that actually isn't the cause. The cause is insulin resistance and then continuing to eat car- all these carbohydrates because once you're insulin resistant, your body can't handle carbohydrates properly and they block your access. Eating carbohydrates blocks your access to all the energy in your body fat. Basically, what I'm saying is it makes you hungry and it makes you hungry for sugary things, for things that will raise your blood sugar. So whether it's a, a bread, carbohydrate rich food, or sweets themselves, it's 
and if you are somebody that has those kinds of sweet cravings or carb cravings, it very well be, may be your metabolism that is the problem, not your willpower. And so fixing your metabolism is really the first step to successful weight loss and reversal of diabetes. So when it comes to understanding adipose tissue, are you saying that someone who has lots of polyunsaturated fat, the you know, dissection or the enumeration of what's within that fat cell becomes disproportionately polyunsaturated versus perhaps more dominantly saturated? Absolutely, yes. And they, we know this because we've done biopsies. Uh, so over the past 100 years, people, uh, scientists have biopsied human adipose fat tissue um, under the skin. And back around the turn of the, the 18 to 1900s, uh, the quantity of polyunsaturated fatty acid was somewhere between two and three, maybe 4%. Um, and then by the middle of the century, that quantity of PUFAs had increased to about six to 10%. And now it's anywhere between 10 and at close to 30% in some people. And it's going to be very heavily dependent on your personal diet, actually. Um, so, you know, there, the average person is eating 80% of their fat calories from these seed oils. And the average person actually gets around 100 pounds per year in this country, in America, um, of seed oils. And, uh, compare that to like uh, less than four pounds of butter. Um, so we have the average person having that much, but some people are consuming way less and some people are unfortunately consuming way more. So you're going to have a variety, but still to answer your question, yes, what's happening is the proportion of fatty acids in your adipose goes from where it should be somewhere around two to 4% probably to where it's never been before. Like this is a massive experiment we are running on the human race now. What happens to people when their adipose contains 10 to 20 times more PUFA than it was designed for, than it was designed to safely handle? And what we're seeing is that we it causes inflammation because these are pro-inflammatory things. And we're seeing all kinds of inflammation-driven diseases. That's everything from Alzheimer's to cancer. And again, to this disaster of what's happening when, you know, apparently healthy looking people are getting coronavirus and, um, and dying from it. And what, what you said, um, there's some metabolic dysfunction. People may assume that fat cells are in a, they're just sacks of fat, <laughs> just ready to, you know, to use maybe when we need them. Um, or maybe people haven't even got that far to understand that it is it is energy in reserve, but they're not inert, right? Adipose tissue isn't inert; it does stuff. And how does how does the polyunsaturated fat prevent its normal function? So, because your your fat cell, your yeah, your body fat is composed of billions and billions of little tiny cells that you can look at under a microscope. Um, and they're little circular blobs that are completely filled with fat. Um, but they're very busy little circular blobs because they have to, they're supposed to be able to release some of their fat between meals and absorb all of your excess calories after meals and kind of hold them in storage, hold the excess, the energy in storage there in the form of fat. And when you become, um, when your body fat is too full of PUFA, um, 
even though your body fat is releasing its energy, it's releasing the fat back into the bloodstream, the cells don't want it. The cells can't really use it because when it turns out that when you try to burn, when your cells try to create energy from these things, it causes massive amounts of inflammation in the mitochondria, which are the cells energy generators. And the cell doesn't get energy. Instead of getting energy, they get inflammation. So the cells being smart, they recognize there's another fuel that they can um, extract energy from. And so they start sucking sugar from the bloodstream, which drops your blood sugar levels and you start to feel really hungry. So this is the very beginning of the metabolic cascade of disruption towards diabetes is where your cells can't use your body fat for energy. And, um, it manifests as weird hunger. Like you just ate your breakfast two hours ago and it had 500 calories. It's only been two hours. You probably only burned at the most a hundred calories at the very most, unless you were doing a heavy workout. So why are you hungry two hours after a breakfast? Well, that has to do with the whole metabolic cascade of damage that, that hap- that follows when your body fat isn't able to do its job, which is provide your cells with energy. And so that's what I talk about in the fat burn fix is how, how does it, how do you go from one, you know, from too much PUFA in your body fat to insulin resistance to, uh, prediabetes and diabetes, because that's an important process to understand because it turns out that depending where you are personally right now in that process, you may not have a lot of luck with, uh, for example, a keto diet, because you actually may be so metabolically damaged that you need to have a little bit of carb- carbohydrates, certain kinds of carbohydrates. Um, you may not be able to do intermittent fasting. So it's so I felt that it was important enough for people to understand what their all those poofas in their body fat have done to them. Where are they in the stage of progression from metabolic health to the ultimate metabolic disease, which is uh, type two diabetes? I, that's that's pretty profound, Kate. Um, as as you were talking, I'm I'm kind of the analogy that was kind of spinning around in my mind is that we've got these fat cells that have normally have petrol in them, but mm. we've been loading up diesel, and when we need that energy, our body's going, but we don't want diesel, we want petrol. <laughs> so and <laughs> and because of that, because we've got the wrong energy in our in our fat stores, which are there for a reason to help us you know, navigate life between feeds, whether that's between breakfast and lunch or, you know, between one hunt and the next, which might be days in between. We've got this energy source that our body doesn't want. And therefore, if it doesn't want that energy, it's going to ask you to eat again. And glucose is a quick hit. And that's what drives a lot of our kind of craving addictions habits when it comes to food. I think that's pretty profound. And, and, um, can't wait to read that book. I'm sure it will kind of elaborate that a little bit more. But the, the, the question I wanted to tag on that is I've read through other um, other research that the body has a detoxification process, right? It has the liver and various stages of de- detoxification followed by the kidney to excrete through urea. Um, but there is a capacity, a, a, de- a detoxification capacity within the body. And if you overconsume various toxic compounds, whether it be plant-based compounds or or kind of plastics or other things, you get rid of what you can. And then when the liver's overburdened, it throws the rest into fat. 
And I've heard that around heavy metals, around oxalates, various, various things. Does that stand up to scientific um, scrutiny? Um, yes, it definitely. If you are uh, stressing your liver and at the same time relying on your liver to be able to get rid of toxins like uh, lead and mercury, then it's not going to work as well. Um, it, it, absolutely. Absolutely. And and then those toxins, you know, in uh, high enough concentration can become pro-inflammatory. Absolutely. Um, and I, I'm glad that you brought up the concept of detoxification because your detoxification mechanisms are almost completely disabled by uh, a body fat full of PUFAs um, because it's constantly, your body fat is constantly being released, you know, between meals, or if you're insulin resistant, your body fat becomes actually in, incontinent and you are leaking fatty acids into your bloodstream on a continuous basis. And, and that actually sets you really up for arteriovascular disease. But it also is constantly flooding your liver with these pro-inflammatory PUFAs and you have no hope of efficiently eradicating any other toxin. Your, your liver is just not efficient. It's not working properly. And you're not going to be able to make all the um, important compounds that the liver manufactures in order for the rest of your body to fight um, inflammation with antioxidants and antioxidant enzymes and cofactors and so on. So it's if you if you're worried about heavy metals, what I'm saying is if you're worried about heavy metals, if you've been exposed to all that and you want to detox, you absolutely need to get these seed oils out of your body. And I guess you need to be careful around how you detox, right? Because I know whether, whether you sign up to the science of oxalates, for example, oxalate poisoning or other forms of um, toxic accumulation in your body, the idea of removing that food from your diet and or going on a diet to then leverage your fat cells. If your fat cells are uh, containing things that your body doesn't really want, now you can get flooded with additional toxins, right? As your body starts to release and excrete the stuff that has been stored because it couldn't be detoxified at a quick enough clip. Uh, at least that's my understanding. Is it, as, as a result, in your book, your latest book, do you talk about how to elegantly or safely start to remove the burden of PUFAs that may be accumulated within your fat cells. Absolutely. Yes. Uh, that's, a, that's a key thing. And, the, and that's very simple, but I, I, it's, the concept is so simple. It's, you just stop eating them and then you start eating the healthy fats instead. But, you know, the way that you do that has to be, um, if you're more seriously metabolic, metabolically damaged, like if you're not very, if your body fat is so full of PUFAs that you really don't, you can't burn it very efficiently at all, then you need to balance your meals with just the right amount of, um, the right kinds of fats and the right kind of carbohydrates to make it to your next meal. So you don't get hungry and need to snack and fall off your diet eventually. So, so that part is very important. Um, and, and getting back to the question of oxalates and do you need to cut out certain things from your diet? If you haven't had kidney stones or gout, so oxalates cause kidney stones, they may play a role in causing uric acid stones as well. Uric acid, um, is another thing that can build up in your body. So, uh, it causes gout. If you haven't had those conditions, then I don't think there's any reason to worry about uric acid or oxalates. Um, and if you have, then as then the reason that those build up in your body is because 
parts of your metabolic machinery are disabled and they're disabled by the combination of um, having too much PUFA in your body fat and then ultimately um, the carbohydrate problems that result when you get um, insulin resistant and pre-diabetic. So I've never met anybody who has gout um, or kidney stones who isn't insulin resistant. Right. Okay. Okay. Well, that's that's important. We've we've had a, a couple of oxalate specialists on on the podcast before. Um, that would suggest something different to what you've said, but um, I think I think perhaps if you were to debate them, you would probably find there's some root cause here that's causing or exacerbating the problem. But you know, their their position would be you probably don't want to be having four cups of spinach in your spinach smoothie every day combined with all these other oxalate rich foods. It's probably overburdening your body. Um, what do you say about that? Oh, I'd say if you have healthy kidneys, um, your body can handle those sorts of things. Cause don't forget when we cook meat, we also create a whole bunch of, uh, toxins that have to do with the fact that amino acids in meat, um, contain a, a, an, an atom called nitrogen and mm-hmm. nitrogen is extremely reactive and you can get all kinds of, uh, toxic compounds from smoking meat, like making bacon, right? So, um, so our bodies are really good at eliminating toxins. We have humans have bigger livers per body weight than animals that don't cook their foods, which is to say other animals, all other animals. (laughs) And that's because cooking creates a lot of toxins. And so, um, we can deal with it when we're healthy, but when we're not healthy, and I would suggest that, um, you know, a huge portion of the population now are insulin resistant. So we're not talking about a background population with a normal metabolism. We're talking about a background population with disordered metabolism. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that you, you know that that person is definitely going to have a problem with their oxalate removal system. They, they might have a lot of other problems and still may never get kidney stones as long as you drink enough water and your kidneys are healthy. So that's why if you, if you are wherever you are now, if you are going on a healthy diet and you're going to stop eating these seed oils, you're going to cut down your carbohydrates and eat healthy carbohydrates. If you have not yet had gout or kidney stones, I would say you're very unlikely to start now when, when you go into a healthier way of eating. Um, as long as you're drinking plenty of water and I can't emphasize that enough because I have never also, I I don't recall so far in my, uh, in my history of being a doctor for 25 years that I've ever encountered somebody who had kidney stones, who was a water drinker almost universally when they first started getting their stones, they were somebody who said, Oh, I always forget to drink water. I hate drinking water. I never drink water. Right. Right. Okay. Well, that's, that's powerful stuff. Thank you for giving me your perspective on that. Kate. Um, you've spoken about PUFAs in in fat cells quite a bit, and how other other tissues in the body don't really want uh, the level of PUFAs and the oxidized PUFAs at that, that um, used for their own energy or, or kind of ce- cellular structure. I guess. Talk to me a bit about connected tissue. So I know you make a big big play on this and the, the importance of good connected tissue as it relates to athletic performance, to beauty, to health. And is, is our poofers at play at perhaps degrading our connected tissue? Or is it the absence of saturated fat and collagen, which is the root cause behind knee issues, joint issues, um, pain when we play sports or generally in life? I mean, maybe you can kind of double click in this whole, whole piece of connected tissue and if poofers play a part. 
Yeah. So biology is like always a matter of yes, this and that, <laughs> right? As it's complicated. So definitely PUFAs play a role in promoting inflammation that can degrade your connective tissue and definitely the absence of nutrients in your diet when you're developing and growing as a child and needing to have these nutrients that help form connective tissue that's supposed to last the rest of your life. If you don't have enough of those nutrients, that also plays a role in setting you up for um, connective tissue disorders like arthritis and um, chronic joint pain and even just cell, cellulitis, like the, uh, I'm sorry, not cellulitis, cellulite, the uh, lumpy fat that we get. Um, that's That lumpy fat that we get on our thighs is a reflection of not enough connective tissue supporting the fat. Hmm. And so it's supposed to be like fat is supposed to be like baby fat, like all nice and smooth and you can pinch it and it just stays smooth. It doesn't get that cottage cheese lumpy look. But now even babies have that cottage cheese lumpy look because um, possibly some epigenetic, some generational problems happening, but also many babies growing up without um, proper nutrition in, in the breast milk and instead getting formula, which is loaded with polyunsaturated fatty acids and definitely pro-inflammatory and definitely damaging to the ability of that child to develop normal, healthy connective tissue. Okay. And when we talk about connective tissue, why why is it so important? What's 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 the deal here? What, what's it doing? The uh, connective tissue is what holds us together. So it holds our bones together. It holds our muscles onto our bones. It makes the tendons and the ligaments. It also is the elastic material that supports our skin and our arteries and enables our um, our heart to stretch and our heart valves to snap back over, you know, millions of beats throughout our lifetime. So connective tissue is super important. And in fact, it's so important that the, the half-life, uh, meaning like the, the durability of a, of a connective tissue of a species is correlated to its lifespan. So that humans are supposed to have a, um, a half-life of our connective tissue of 75 years, meaning by the time you're 75, half your connective tissue is probably gone or not functional. It's all like sprung, like little rubber bands. Mm. Um, it's this one subtype of connective tissue called elastin that I'm talking about. Um, cause we make that in puberty and we don't make any more. So it's your elastin type of connective tissue that gives you that spring in your skin and, um, that spring in your, in your tendons. And, um, that's so important that um, it determines you how you age, really. I mean, if, if you want to see somebody who's going to be a happy 100-year-old, you are looking at somebody who has fantastically healthy connective tissue. And if you're looking at somebody who's already got like recurring joint problems, um, like in their teens, and I've unfortunately run across so many like, uh, you know, young girl soccer players who just get recurring knee pains and they can't continue playing their sport. That's because if you look at their tendons and their kneecaps and compare it even just to their parents, it's all thinner and smaller and there's less, there's, it's just less robust. And, uh, so there, that is, um, so important to your ability to age gracefully and to athletic performance that, um, you know, we see, that's where we see actually so many of these uh, collagen supplement companies popping up all over the place mm -hmm. because if there's anything that you can do to support 
the health of your connective tissue, it's going to be consuming like collagen and um, glycosaminoglycans and all the stuff that is in bone broth. Actually, if you um, make just a good old fashioned chicken soup, that's actually the best for keeping your connective tissue healthy. And at the very least, it's going to help your skin, your hair and your nails look better. So this, this connective tissue, is it, is it a combination of being a, a burdened or abused by our diet? Or is it deficiency in our diet that causes connective tissue to become quote unquote unhealthy? It's definitely both. Like I say, biology is, is allows for as many possibilities, um, as many combinations of possibilities as you can imagine biology allows for. So there can definitely be people who came into this world with the genetics to build extremely robust connective tissue, but there was so much inflammation um, in their body because of consuming too much seed oils that it got broken down. And the other way around, you ha- you may have some people who didn't have the best uh, genetics coming into it to build the best, most robust tendons and joints and so and best skin and so on. But their diets have been pristine, so that even though they were maybe uh, you know set up for for problems from birth, their parents have really been careful about feeding them, and then they maintain a good diet so that they can kind of you know, do better than they would otherwise. And then you have like the very unfortunate combination. And I see this a lot where just young people having chronic joint pains. And these are the people I'm talking about where they try to play soccer, they try to play baseball or something, and they just keep getting recurring soft tissue injuries and tendonitis and ligament strains and chronic pain and shin splints. And they just can't do it. And that's really the saddest case. But even so, getting rid of the seed oils is going to help them. And even so, uh, fortifying with, you know, the bone stocks is going to help. And is that, is that the best way to fortify? Is that, are there other foods other than bone broth, whether it be beef or chicken bone broth, where these foods naturally have some collagen or other supportive nutrition towards our connected tissue? the connective tissue rich parts of, uh, of a body. So right. that would be skin. That would be, uh, like s- organs. So a stomach a tripe, um, that's very high in collagen. That's actually made out of mostly collagen, um, and beef tendon. So like, if you are a fan of pho, uh, which is a Vietnamese soup or Korean soup, depending who you ask, yeah. um, that the beef tendon, they just like, it's literally a, a tendon and they slice it up and they put it in the hot broth, which itself is made from by boiling bones and is loaded with some of the, all this good stuff, the glycosaminoglycans and the collagen hydrolysates and stuff. So, um, you've not, you've not yet described a food that people eat though. <laughs> That's the problem, right? And I know that is part of your book's kind of thesis, yep, which is we've, we've moved so far away from our, our traditional relationship with animals and food and how we feed ourselves, but is there anything in between which is a little less weird that <laughs> contains collagen? But yeah, there's just chicken skin, right? So okay. if you, um, you know, if you like your wings, um, bake them, right? That when you when you deep fry, you do kind of break and damage a little bit more of the collagen that's in the skin. But if you bake them or uh, you know throw them in a soup, uh, that chicken skin is 
super good for you. And it's actually a source of a lot of the collagen powders that people are marketing and selling on their own. So I found, tell me if these are these are correct or not. So we, we've kind of moved towards more of a nose to tell uh, way of sourcing our, our, our meat-based products. So we try and be a little bit more creative. So we have a lot of stuff on the bone. So whether it be a, a lamb leg or some kind of uh, rack of beef or some kind of, some kind of um, pork thing, again, on the bones, we do that. Um, we have oxtail, which I, I believe is very collagenous in its own right. Um, we have ox cheek um, and a few other things. Oh, rib, rib eyes, for example, quite quite fatty cuts of meat. Is that a good way to go? You have to be eating the collagenous part. So if you're going to have oxtail, you want to stew it long enough so that that collagenous yes. stuff. Oh, no, um, no it's stewed down. for hours and hours and hours until it all just turns into <laughs> like melty stuff. And then that, that's, that's melting down the collagen, right? As far as I'm aware. Yeah. Yes. And so you, and you'll see it, right? Because you'll be gnawing on the bone and there'll be this this kind of, I don't want to say gooey, but sort of gummy. It's like almost like gummy yeah. bears, bouncy stuff on the edge of the bone. Well, that's the good stuff. And so, yes, you know, pick it up. That's I'm sure what our ancestors, when we didn't have, uh, you know, utensils or anything, we didn't have table manners to worry about. We just picked up those bones and gnawed on every last bit of that good stuff. Yes, yeah, what my mom used to do. And I thought she was a barbarian like remember you, she'd suck you'd suck the bones inside the meat and like crack them open or just like chew away the bones and i'd be like Ugh, i hate eating with my hands give me a knife and fork and i'll i'll get the nice bits of meat and i'll leave the kind of you know, like sinewy bits away and i'm just realizing now that they're probably she was onto something unknowingly <laughs> she definitely was definitely was i have a really cute picture of my sister when she's two uh we gave her a turkey leg and she's uh, picks it up and is gnawing on the um, the small part because that's the only thing she could get her her little mouth around, which is that bone there with all the cartilage at yeah. the end of it, which I'm sure tasted really good. But you know, so it's an it's just the natural human inc inclination is to pick stuff up with our hands and bring it to our mouths. But again, it's one of the things that this modern world uh, separates us from our natural inclinations and our natural ability to keep ourselves healthy is just not you know the the impolite factor. <laughs> <laughs> the gotta use utensils factor. Yeah, yeah, and and I I found that I think you've written about this as well, Kate. That these kind of um, fatty parts of 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 a a meal. So whether it's an oxtail or it's just just the fatty parts of a of of an animal before being cooked, tastes pretty gross before being cooked. But it's when you render it down, it goes from being clearly gross. I couldn't eat the fat off of an oxtail raw or uh, undercooked. But as soon as it's rendered down and it turns into the kind of the liquid form and it kind of just stews in with the rest of the meat part, it's glorious. It's, it's amazing. But there's quite a profound difference between it being quite gross and being really tasty. Is there something going on there? Well, so I wonder if you're, when you're saying the fat, if you're actually looking at the white stuff that is actually the cartilage, because at least around here, when I buy oxtail, the skin's off and the fat's off. And all I see really is the muscle, the bone, and the cartilage. Correct. Yes. So it's, it's the cartilage it, stuff. You know you wouldn't be able to eat that, but clearly that starts to render down eventually. But yes, and a lot of people think it's fat, but it's actually not. It's protein. 
it's made out of protein. It's a oh. protein and um, molecules that are neither protein nor sugar. Or they're unique. They're combinations of protein and um, sugar molecules. That's where you get your glycosaminoglycans. But it's 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 a lot of it is collagen, which is a protein. And but it looks like a lot of people do call it fat, and it yeah. looks fatty, and it melts a little bit like fat. So it's I totally understand why you're saying that. But you're, it's an important point because it isn't truly the fat. And yes, definitely, it would not taste good because it's these long polymer molecules that that would not uh you need to have it chopped up by the process of boiling or cooking the molecule then can interact with your taste buds otherwise it's just too long and it won't interact with your taste buds and will have no flavor and it'll just kind of like whatever was on it it'll taste like whatever was on it which usually isn't going to be yummy because <laughs> mm, i i, I... I, I often reach the conclusion if it tastes good naturally without a lot of manipulation, it's it's a food we should be eating. You know, our uh, you know taste and aroma and our response to food, I think, is built in. It's deco- it's coded in uh, into us. Uh, but then I would get confused by how. But if it's not treated, it don't taste right. But I think what you've just said there makes sense, right? There's there's goodness there, and we have we have evolved the way we have because we've learned to cook, and through that cooking process, we've been able to. Um, liberate uh, nutrition that otherwise would have been unavailable. And it's that liberation of nutrition that tastes great. Yes. And we've been cooking for so long that we now depend on that. We don't have the ability to break these things down the way dogs and cats do. And they can just, you know, and sharks, right? Um, They can just eat the bones whole when their digestive enzymes are so ferociously powerful that they're going to, you know, just break it all up into mush. We have to cook because we we have been, there's evidence we've been using fire for like over a million years. So um, we're definitely, <laughs> it's okay to make soup. <laughs> <laughs> so this has been fantastic. Um, I could ask so many more questions on just the stuff we've been speaking about. But there was one other topic that you write about so elegantly, and I would like us just to just portion a little bit more time towards that, if that's okay, which is maternal and child nutrition. So you make a few claims in this book, which could be quite jarring for people. Um, and I'll, I'll tee you up and then feel free to correct as you see fit. But I, I get from your book, this idea of genetic wealth, which isn't just genet- genetics, it's the, the wealth that's being passed on by your family, from your family, both their genetics and how they've looked after themselves. So what they've eaten. And then you, and then you start to make claims that nutrition affects how people look, their uh, their perception of their beauty, um, whether they have failure to thrive, if they like a a small child uh, or a a not particularly strong child or um, uh, someone who turns into an adult that's quite small and frail or what have you, is you're connecting prenatal, maternal and child nutrition towards how adults become who they are. And I found that really profound because of the connection of nutrition to beauty. And I think a lot of people would find that jarring. Uh, and you talk about something called the golden ratio, which I thought was fascinating. So I've kind of teed you up a lot a lot there, but how do you want to kind of unpick this a little bit and talk about the significance and importance of maternal and child nutrition and how that plays out into those things, not just health, but also beauty? Okay. Yes. That's a a hugely (laughs) important topic, but it's a big one. Yep. But it's hugely important. And, uh, yeah, so there's, uh, this science called epigenetics, which studies how well your genes 
are expressed. Uh, so uh, your genes actually um, are expressed differently in different cells, right? You have the same exact DNA in a muscle cell that you do in a fat cell, but they're doing radically different things. And that has to do with epigenetics. Um, and epigenetics also uh, relates to nutrition. So a, a lot of the determinants of how your genes are expressed are actual nutrients like um, calcium or vitamins like vitamin D, vitamin A, vitamin K. Um, they're also fatty acids and proteins and so on. And so your diet is interacting with your DNA all the time and helping your DNA function properly. And this is so important during periods of rapid growth that um, back um, you know, in traditional societies, uh, they have extreme amount of care and attention to properly pre-feeding young couples before allowing them to get married and conceive children. And uh, because back, you know, 100, 200,000 years ago, um, all that before we had hospitals um, and uh, cesarean sections and all this surgical intervention of childbirth, if you didn't have wide enough hips uh, if your baby's head wasn't shaped right, you would die in childbirth and your baby would die. Uh, so it was very important. It was much more important for people to pay. It's their lives depended on proper nourishment because as uh, you know, it's widely known, but not always widely talked about that we kind of humans kind of live sort of on the edge of head size versus pelvic width in terms of um childbirth. And that's why our children are so um, dependent for such a long period because they are almost essentially born premature while their heads are still small enough mm -hmm. to make it out of the pelvis. There's been this race between the brain size and the need to walk upright, um, which narrows our hips and makes the birth canal more narrow. So we, the way nature solved this problem was our babies are born very, very dependent, which is fine because we love them so much that we take fantastic care of them. But all that being said, um, kind of the canary in the coal mine for a unhealthy diet on a, um, you know, a, a cultural basis, right across the population is problems with childbirth. So we started seeing that, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, basically with the beginning of civilization, when we went from being more hunter gatherer or herder gatherer and very animal based to being more depending on plants for more of our nutrition. And that's when we started to see, uh, more, uh, problems with childbirth. Um, but, but it, how does that relate to growth? Because we're talking about skeletal growth and skeletal development. And it turns out that there, um, there is a formula for proper skeletal development that's geometric that, and when I say proper, I mean functional, like it's going to give you the most strength and the most functionality. You're going to have the the best space to grow eyeballs, for example, or the best space in your mouth to grow wisdom teeth or all the teeth that you need. Because again, a thousand years ago, if your teeth came in crooked, you would get a cavity, something would get stuck in between there and you would die. If you had impacted wisdom teeth, you uh, would be in terrible pain and all your teeth would become crooked and you would die, right? So we had to have um, 
abs absolutely everything had to be absolutely the most functional and perfect. And it turns out that in the universe, in the encoded in the physics of the universe, there is this um, formula or a constant, a, a, a mathematical constant called phi um, that relates to the Fibonacci sequence that helps our skeletons grow properly and it can only function properly when our genes are properly nourished and properly expressed. So that the way that a mother eats during pregnancy has a massive influence on that child's facial development in addition to their own genetics, right? But, um, but it's a combination of the mother's genetics and, um, and her diet. Um, and of course the father's genetics too. And, and maybe there may even be some role in parental, a paternal diet, um, at least when it comes to autism. But, um, in terms of the way that we, um, the way that we dis, that we respond to this proper growth, um, when we see it, we don't actually cognitively think about it. We, it's an emotional response and we've got a name for it. We call it beauty or beautiful um, because it speaks to us at a fundamental genetic survival-based level that this person that we're looking at that makes us feel this way, um, that we respond to, that, that they look beautiful, um, that they are genetically healthy. They are genetically, you know, um, th that's a good, that's a good bet, right? If you have to, uh, put, decide where you're going to put your genetic eggs, this person is going to be a good bet because of the fact that they reflect this proper growth, meaning more functional. And, and so beauty really is not in the eye of the beholder is, is what it, it turns out, um, I mean, to some extent, there are cultural preferences about, uh, you know, um, maybe the colors, uh, coloration, and uh, but for the most part, is a universal constant, and it's the same mathematical formula for a beautiful face. It's the same formula whether we're talking, no matter what race we're talking about. So um, I thought that research was fascinating, um, and it comes from a oral maxillofacial surgeon who was looking for a solution to how to reposition people with severe injuries from car accidents and gunshot wounds, how to reposition all these you know, pieces of bone in a way that would be most functional. So it's, um, it's not something that like is, it's something that's still controversial, but it, it shouldn't be because it's... Um, it's really undeniable and every other animal follows the same principle. Like if you look at, uh, penguins, right? Like they all have exactly the same geometry, right? They look so identical. It's hard to distinguish them from each other. We think only penguins can do it somehow. Um, and people are supposed to all have very, very similar geometry to our faces. Um, so, uh, so that there really, you know, isn't supposed to be folks like me needing glasses, right? That's, that's not because of a defect of, of, um, genetics necessarily. It's because of a defect of nutrition somewhere in my development that didn't enable my skeleton to develop in the way in accordance with this, uh, geometric mathematical, um, constant. I find that absolutely fascinating. But when you allow yourself to 
really absorb it. It makes so much sense. It makes so much sense that beauty is an expression of an ability to thrive, to procreate, to survive, and to do good. Um, and that is our our means of um, determining or you know, understanding you know, good partnerships. That makes sense. And I've heard many people describe that beauty is really an expression of health. But I guess the counters to your or, or, no, or the challenges to what you're saying, and I know you, you're sure you have robust responses, would be, well, you can find healthy people, or no, you can find beautiful people that clearly aren't particularly healthy. Uh, how, how do you respond to that? I, I guess that's part, well, let's, let's disconnect developmental nutrition with adult nutrition. I mean, is that part of it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can take something that could have been healthy and feed it poorly enough so that it now develops a, a, a disease or doesn't grow properly or something. So that is absolutely possible. Um, and I just, I should put a little disclaimer onto this whole conversation about it doesn't mean that if you're not beautiful, you're not worthy as, as a human being and you don't have, you know, value. I'm, it's, I'm, I'm not placing a value on it other than um, the structural strength that it imparts to our bones and the functionality that enables uh, our teeth to be straight and our eyes to grow properly so that we don't need glasses. Um, so, uh, it's but yes, it's about functionality. Beauty is an expression yeah. of functionality is what, what you're saying at the, at the kind of, uh, the deepest level that we don't really understand and isn't part of our society or part of our kind of measurement today. But deep down, we're looking to see, are you functionally a good fit as a partner? Absolutely. And then, so when we're talking about, can you take good genes and how can you have somebody with good genes ever being unhealthy? Well, that's about the, um, the epigenetics and the expression of the DNA. So like in a, in a more familiar example might be, you might have a seed from a plant that's a perfectly healthy seed, but you stick that plant in a place where it's getting not enough light and you don't water it, or you give it the wrong kind of soil. It's not going to look very uh, healthy or robust as it grows. It's not going to be as healthy. So there's there's a, a lot of ways to destroy something, but there uh, are you know once you have built, it's harder to destroy than to create, right? So if you if you um, don't come into the the world with the perfect DNA, uh, like I certainly didn't, um, and then you on top of that don't have the best nutrition. Well, then yes, you are more likely to need glasses, and you're also more likely to have um, chronic allergies and other chronic little nuisance problems like migraines or maybe, uh, problems with acne or, uh, problems with infertility or, um, you know, there's just, there's so many things that can break down, right? Health is really this precious thing that, um, it's, uh, if we do everything right and we have perfect health, we can do some extraordinary things, but there's so many things that uh, that get now in the way of us doing everything right that you so rarely see it anymore. Well, absolutely. I think um, Western A. Price kind of called it out many, many years ago in the in the the, the structural deformities and the kind of the lack of space in people's mouths and the, you know the crooked teeth and you know the the fact that people need to have te teeth out i mean my my wife is very beautiful but she had to have eight teeth out to to just live 
um, which doesn't say, doesn't seem to make intuitive sense. Like, why would we need to take so many teeth out just to be? Because her, her mouth is really, really small. And is that because she was a second child? And when she was born, um, the understanding of good nutrition, both before conceiving, during pregnancy, and for years of her development, uh, her mother done the best she could with what she knew. And we now know better. Or we had forgotten our traditional wisdom with the um, advent of convenience food. Talk to me just a little bit about that as we close on this uh, and close on our conversation as a whole. Is How prevalent is malnutrition as it relates to pregnancy and, say, the first formative years of development of a child? Is, is it a big issue that we're facing? It absolutely is. When I was doing the research to write this chapter um, called the second sibling um, uh, syndrome in, in deep nutrition, um, I found that there, there, there was no study showing that women had plenty of every vitamin. In fact, um, every study showed that women of childbearing age were deficient in more than one essential nutrient for building a child's body. So um, we are really, we could do way better. And and if we did, um, you know, we would be way rewarded. I, I think that um, that's the positive side of this is like, we are, we have kind of lowered our expectations on, on health, you know, and what is it like, you know, we, we kind of almost are accepting now when our children, uh, you know, maybe from a very early age need glasses or start developing allergy problems or have to go to the doctor on a regular basis or can't even eat a lot of foods because of some kind of digestive disorder. Or um, dental issues, right? You know, the, the, the yeah. need to, you know my, both my daughters or at least one of them has been back and forward with the orthodontist with the speculation she might need to have a couple of her teeth removed just to have the rest of them fit because otherwise they're going to be overlapping and all crooked. Now, we're hoping through what has been, I think, really clean and elegant and pristine nutrition over the last few years that you know the repeat visits to the orthodontist, they're saying, actually, we're not sure. We think she might be all right. But hereditary, she picked up this idea of like a small jaw from her mother um, now, I've spoken to Michelle about this, and we've backed and forth a little bit. And you know, of course, it's not judgmental on her or not judgmental on her mother. Um, but she was second born a couple years after her her, her brother. Uh, and in a time in the 80s where, you know, nutrition awareness wasn't great. You talk about second born children and how they can sometimes be not endowed with optimal nutrition and that can express itself with perhaps being a little bit smaller or having a few more issues can you just kind of explain how, how that how that works and maybe what the optimal distance between children should be or at least the strategy to replenish the, uh, the female's body between births yes absolutely and so you you touch on why the problem is because the building blocks for manufacturing a baby 
come from the mother's body. And the placenta is very efficient at extracting these building blocks to the extent that, um, you know, some women, you can actually see that their brains have shrunk during pregnancy if they weren't, if their diet wasn't rich enough in brain building fats, that is particularly the, um, the essential fatty acids. Uh, the PUFAs that we were just talking about as being bad. So we do need some of them, but they need to come from whole foods, not the seed oils. But um, so yeah, the societies traditionally um, had at least two years and generally, you know, three or four. And especially nowadays, I, I feel like, you know, three is probably a, a much safer bet than less than three. <laughs> um, and that's because the mother needs time to replenish all the stores of all the the minerals and the vitamins and just the, all the different kinds of building blocks that that next baby needs to be physically constructed out of. It's not just mother's diet. It you know it it, it gets um, it's it comes directly more directly from mother's body because uh, that that is just the way nature has designed stuff. Um, so that because the, there's always been something in, the, in mother's skeleton, they're necessarily not necessarily something always in um, in her diet. So um, so there's that disadvantage to the second, third, or fourth child if there's only been one or two years between child after child after child. On the other hand, the firstborn actually has um, a little bit of a disadvantage because um, in a setting of a modern diet where there's all this inflammation, um, the 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 baby building machinery, the plumbing um, of blood flow in the uterus and everything uh, doesn't quite get ramped up as quickly as necessary. And so the firstborn child can often have a crowded living space, crowded space to develop in and come out with asymmetries that you can see on their faces. So that happened to me. I'm the first. And um, my compared to my left eye, my right eye is like, to me, it looks like it's twice as big. That's why <laughs> I never wear contacts because I like to try to hide that behind glasses. Um, and, you know, there, and my jaw is asymmetrical and um, I've got like one foot that's a size eight and another foot that's a size seven. So, you know, that's a result of um, the um, ina inadequate hormone response. And so by baby number two, the hormone receptors are seem to be primed better so that the, the uterine space is just a little bit more generous. There's a little bit better blood flow. And, mm -hmm. and the, uh, the second child tends to be more symmetrical than the first on a modern diet. Oh, wow. Do you know what? That's, that's so interesting. You know, uh, my, my, only, my personal anecdote is that we've got two beautiful children, two girls, Holly and and Kira, uh, a few, her three years between them. Um, and Holly is the one who's struggling with the teeth thing that we just described. Um, other than that, she's robust. She's robust, relatively tall, uh, healthy, academically spot on. And she just seems to have been enamored with, you know, good genes, you know, is how people would describe it. Uh, whereas the, the second child, Kira, she doesn't suffer with the teeth thing. She's beautiful in her in absolutely in her own way. Uh, obviously, we can't call it. They're both beautiful, um, but she's very petite, very very small. Uh, and I think you know, I'm sure she's going to grow out of some of that. Uh, and they're probably in time. There won't be a massive difference between the two. But developmentally, based on where they were, you know, if, as we kind of track their ages, the second one is developing slower across all measures, including physically. Um, and that's quite interesting because, you know, what my wife done the best she could 
She didn't smoke. She didn't drink. She ate the foods that she thought she should have. Uh, but in retrospect, we would do things differently now. And in retrospect, between the two births, there wasn't really a, a forceful and deliberate replenishment of her body. She was just continuing to eat a very carb-dominant diet with very, very little red meat. It just was RMO. So I kind of reflect back on it and go, huh, there's there's some truth in what you're saying, which isn't just theoretical. Right, right. And of course, it's on average, right? So it, it's not like a 100% rule. It's just, you know, biology uh, always tries to adapt. And sometimes it, find ways, it finds ways to adapt. And maybe even just that fact that she is smaller is um, somehow hormones causing like less rapid growth because the body was sensing, well, there's just not enough of the raw materials mm -hmm. here. So we're just going to try to do our best, but build it um, in a, you know, as perfectly as we can with just a little bit less of everything. And yeah. so there are so many ways that the body adopts, but um, so, so that it's not like that's a hard and fast hundred percent of the time rule, but it is on average seems to be um, what uh, seems to be like the predominant pattern that I've noticed. I love that. But of course it is theoretical. Thank you. There, yeah, exactly. I understand it is, is theoretical. Um, it is based on some science, but of course we're all different and unique and, uh, there's umpteen permutations of life. So of course we can't call it every time, but I appreciate the the patterns that you've identified and, and the science and the nutritional science that could help explain why perhaps some of these things we see across our population, across our children. Um, this has been absolutely fantastic. We covered everything I would have expected. Um, I hope everyone loves this. Of course, there's a lot of detail around the the what what to do after hearing all of this. And I know Deep Nutrition, your book, um, covers both all of this knowledge in deeper detail, but also gives you the, the framework of a, you know, a, a good diet, a traditionally consistent, wholesome diet. So we won't go into that, but is there any other kind of closing remarks that you want to make in regards to you know, the what and the how for people? Um, I suppose I just want to make sure that I don't give a message of like, you absolutely need to do everything perfect. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I understand that there's a lot to learn and, um, just getting the seed oils out of your diet, uh, can feel overwhelming for some folks, you know, and because the, if, once you start looking for them and you find them in so many things, you, you naturally have like a little bit of a, oh my God, how am I going to live without these crackers that yeah. I love, or how am I going to live without this salad dressing, you know? And so it's a learning curve and it's a process. And I feel like the, um, a way to think about it is that, um, you know, falling in love with food and flavor and, um, getting, uh, as much as you possibly can, your kids involved in the process of, cooking and enjoying the food, um, I think is key. Cause that's how people used to grow up. You know, we, I, some of my healthiest, uh, friends and patients are people who say that they grew up cooking. Um, and, uh, you know, when it was, especially when it was a traditional way of cooking. Um, and I, I think that, uh, we're a little bit allergic to the kitchen. Like we like to have our nice granite countertops and everything being pristine, but we don't want to actually use a lot of the, <laughs> 
you know, we don't want to actually do a lot of work in there. And we haven't really carved our day, our daily habits and our daily routines around making meals or spending time doing that together. We do a lot of other things together, which are very important. Um, But just sort of nudging towards doing more together in the kitchen, I think is a habit or a mindset way of approaching this rather than getting lost in the little details necessarily of, oh my gosh, I can't afford everything to be grass fed or exactly what um, is the maximum number of carbs and stuff like that. And um, just thinking of ways to do things together because that makes it fun. I, I think that's beautiful. It makes perfect sense. And I can agree with you that if you are trying to avoid seed oils, the, you know, the, the eight that you've just described, um, by trying to adapt your current diet that might be predominantly within the middle aisles of a supermarket, I think you're going to struggle. For you to try and find swaps that don't have these oils, I think it's going to become so complicated that you'll just pass on this notion and say, forget about it. But there needs to be a kind of mental shift to say, really, I have to go on a journey of relearning food and relearning the art and the the process and the love of cooking. Because when you get to the point of enjoying scratch cooking again and taking away that kind of the benefits that came from convenience food, which is all the stuff in the middle of the aisle, then this now becomes simple because you don't need any of those seed oils. You won't naturally, you know, be magnetized to them in your cooking. You will use butter and beef dripping and things like that. But it's when you try and find swaps in the middle of the aisle. I just don't think that's a don't think that's a winning strategy. I agree, and and you're also going to find that when you do uh, you you know swap out these seed oils for more flavorful fats, things are going to taste better. Oh, absolutely, hundred hundred percent. Cool. Thank you so much, Kate. Um, so we've spoken about your book, Deep Nutrition. the The one that has has it been released? Uh, the Fat Burn Fix is that what it's called? Yes, it's been released in the U.S. and Canada, um, and it's, they're still working on getting it um, to the U.K. So it may be that you, I'm pretty sure you might be able to download it on Kindle, um, the Fat Burn Fix, um, but um, it's, it's going to be coming soon. Yes. Okay. okay. Cool. I don't, I don't think I found it just yet, so I think we, we must okay. be a little bit behind in the U.K. Great. And where can people find you if they wanted to just kind of follow you along online? My website is drkate.com. So it's D-R and Kate with a C, D-R-C-A-T-E.com. And that's where I have lots of useful resources on what are the seed oils? Why are they bad? There's some recipes there, some links to some um, YouTube channel, a YouTube channel that has more recipes, some links to some shopping lists where at least uh, at least in the state of Florida, if you happen to be listening to Florida, there's tons of useful guides because things like peanut butter can be challenging. How do you find a peanut butter that doesn't have one of the seed oils in it? Mm. So I've got resources to help with shopping. Lovely. And and on social, are you, you, you social on social? Yes. I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Lovely. I'll make sure I'll link to all of those in the show notes. <laughs> cool. Good stuff. Well, um, enjoy the rest of the week. Hopefully we can return to some level of normal very soon. And um, thank you for doing everything that you're doing, the leadership and yeah, challenging the status quo is tiring, no doubt. So thank you for fighting the good fight. Well, thank you, Steve, for the opportunity to talk about it with you. It's been a lot of fun.
Whoa, just before you go, I want to know two things from you, if you would be so kind. Firstly, how did you find that episode? Was it insightful? Was it practical? Has it got you thinking about things differently? If so, do us a huge favor, please, and write us up a quick review in your podcast app, whether it be on Apple or Google, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform. And secondly, have you checked out the Be Your Best journey yet? If you haven't, that's cool, but go to adaptnation.io or click the link within the show notes and just take a look around. See how we put together the messaging as to the value of this online course and program. And if you've got any thoughts, I'd love to hear them. And if you're interested about it, then hey, there's no time like the present. Get involved. It's 100 days of personal growth and self-development. I am sure you're going to get a lot of value from it. Anyway, until next time, I'll let you crack on and be your best. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show. Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adaptnation.io, or your favorite social media channel. This has been Adaptation. Till next time, thanks for listening. Adaptation.